Our sermon text reading comes from the book of John, chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Betrayal. That's one of the worst experiences anyone could go through. It is one thing to be betrayed by someone you don't know that well, someone who's bent on evil. That is devastating, of course, but it's quite another thing to be betrayed by someone close to you, someone who you know, love, and trust. Such experiences are very difficult to come back from. We all know it takes a lifetime to build trust. It takes one minute to destroy it forever. Jesus knows betrayal. As we saw in the text from last week, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his own disciples, with a kiss. And that must have stung so deeply, his own disciple doing this to him. But Judas was evil. He was possessed by Satan, as John 13 says. And if you're possessed by the devil, you do evil things like this. In our passage for today, Jesus is betrayed by Peter. By Peter, of all people, someone closer to him, a loving disciple, someone who was very much devoted to Jesus. 
If the betrayal of Judas hurt Jesus, how much more so the betrayal of Peter? And it was a betrayal of sorts, a betrayal of broken promises, betrayal through denying Jesus Christ. If we have the pain of being betrayed, and we're one one of those this morning just struggling to get through that, just know this, that Jesus has been there. And he knows it so perfectly because he himself has been betrayed. And that means he is able to be present in your suffering with his grace and mercy. He will be present in your life with his love. And that makes a world of difference. When I was a kid, I was terrified of this passage. And I was terrified because I would think to myself, if Peter could deny Jesus, certainly I could. And I would play out these scenarios in my head where terrorists would storm the church and they would hold people at at, at gunpoint and they would say, do you believe in Jesus? And if you said yes, they would kill you. And if you said no, they would let you live. And I wondered how I would fare in that situation. How would I fare today in that situation? I've got a wife and kids dependent on me. And I'm not so sure I would emerge as pure as I would like to be. And so this passage is often used to encourage people or exhort people, you know, don't be like Peter. Make sure that, that you stand for Jesus. Don't fall like Peter did. Be better. But I'm not sure this is what the passage is mainly about. I think those applications can be good. We do need to stand for Jesus. We, we never want to deny his name. But that's not the point of this passage. Rather, it's to expose our complete insufficiency before an all-sufficient God full of love. It's meant to expose that, that, that we can't live the perfect life, to expose our deep need for a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. So it's not meant to make us bunker down and, and muster up strength. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be better. No, it's a picture of the gospel. And so we're going to unpack this in three points. We're going to look more specifically at Peter's denial, and we'll see ourselves as Peter doing the same kinds of things. And then second, we're going to look at the love of Jesus, a love that's highlighted in his growing suffering that causes him to die for people like Peter, people like me and you. And then the third point will be application. How then shall we live? So first, let's look at Peter's denial. And it might seem so surprising to us that Peter would deny Jesus because of the character of Peter, because of of his qualities, who he was. Peter, of all disciples, was perhaps the most devoted to Jesus, the most committed to him. Uh, Peter was part of the inner circle of Jesus, along with James and John. That's a testimony to, to Peter's commitment and devotion to his master. 
But then I think of the story uh, of uh, where, where Jesus is on the mount with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured before their eyes. And so, so Christ's clothes are shining in white, and there's this glory about Jesus. And there next to Jesus is Moses and Elijah, and they're shining in glory too. And all of this is a preview of our heavenly glory, of what we'll be like in the world to come. And so Peter sees this beautiful display of majesty, and he says, we need to build tents. Now, I would be terrified. I would want to run away. You know, get me off that mountain. Like, I'm just melting in fear from that sight. But, but Peter wants to make tents because he wants to stay there. He wants to just stay immersed in the glory of Christ and never leave his presence ever. That's how devoted he was. And yet such a man can deny him. It might seem so strange that Peter would deny him because of all the disciples, Peter perhaps was the most bold. He was a leader. We can see many examples of this through the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Uh, in the sermon that Pastor Dan gave last week, we, we saw some of that. So Jesus was arrested and of course, the, the disciples are, are at their emotional end here. All of their hopes are being crushed. Jesus is being arrested. It, it's all over. But Peter, in his boldness, he, he draws his sword and cuts off a soldier's ear. And that, would, that could bring death upon you. If you attack a soldier, it, you could be killed. But, but, but there's Peter. He wants to do something. And he's willing to die at that point for Jesus. And yet, just a few moments later, he's denying him. It might seem so strange that Peter is going to deny Jesus because of all the disciples, Peter had the most knowledge of Jesus. I think of Matthew 16, and there's a discussion of what people are saying about Jesus. And then Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this testimony, upon this biblical truth that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church. So there is Peter. He knows a lot about Jesus. He doesn't have Jesus down perfectly. He doesn't understand yet the, the, the full nature of the kingdom, spiritual versus earthly. He doesn't understand that Christ has to die and rise, but he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And with that, despite that strong confession based upon strong knowledge, he still denies Jesus. It might seem so strange that Peter would do this because of how resolved he was not to sin. I mean, he had said it in his heart to stay pure. In Matthew 26, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And there Jesus predicts that Judas is going to betray him. And he also predicts Peter's denial. And when Peter hears Jesus say that, Peter says, if everyone else falls away, I won't. And then Jesus gets very specific. He says, yes, you will. In fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then Peter says, I will give my life for you. So here is Peter, such a strong person, committed, bold, 
He's resolved not to sin. And yet, despite all of his efforts, despite all of his inner abilities, he cannot keep himself from sinning and falling. Let's look at how this happens. And so Jesus is led to the household of Annas, and this is going to be part of his trial. And Peter follows. He follows at a distance. He doesn't want to get too close. He doesn't want to be known as a follower of Jesus. He doesn't want to appear associated with Jesus. So his love is compelling him to follow, but he's not quite fully in it because he's holding back. He's at a distance. And some of this makes sense because he had just attacked a soldier. So, So there's some legitimate fear, but I think it's deeper than that. He really doesn't want to be associated with his Savior. And we know that because Peter is following Jesus. Uh, He's with another disciple, as our passage says. And this disciple is probably John, the author of this book of the Bible. And John seems to know everyone in the household of Annas. He knows the servants. He knows all the people there. And John is not afraid to to be known as associated with Jesus. In fact, they already know he's associated with Jesus. And so he goes up to this servant girl and he uh, gets her to to let them in. So this is not a very dangerous place yet. This is not a high-risk situation. But there's Peter, you know, following from uh, behind. And And then when the servant girl who knows John is a follower of Jesus, she asks, well, aren't you also a follower of Jesus? You know, to Peter, this is not a threatening question. But Peter denies Jesus. The seeds of denial were already in his heart as he followed Christ to the courtyard, and then he actually denies him. He's just so full of fear. And we can feel the weight of this sin. You know, Peter says, I am not a follower. I am not and this, is de- this deliberately contrasts with what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is arrested, they ask, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, I am. And here Peter says, I am not. I am not a follower. Well, Peter then you know, tries to separate himself from, from the servant girl, and he tries to hide in a crowd of people who are warming themselves uh, by a fire. And he, I think, he probably thinks that maybe I'll be safe here. There can be no, I will not be assailed here. I will not be tempted here. And he just blends in with all these other people. But sure enough, someone says, well, aren't you a follower of Christ? And Peter denies him a second time. And then there's another person in that crowd who's a relative of the man whose ear he had cut off. And so maybe there is some legitimate danger here. But aren't you a follower of Jesus? Didn't I see you when Jesus was arrested? And Peter probably recognizes him too. And then Peter denies Christ for the third time and the rooster crows. We have this account of Peter to make us see ourselves as Peter. And we're like him in so many ways. We are like Peter in terms of our insufficiency to save ourselves, our our insufficiency to live this perfect holy life before God. 
You know, so many uh, people might, uh, you know, they have this teaching, it's called the, the higher life movements or, or perfectionism or victorious Christian living. And, and they're taught that you can actually achieve a state that is sinless. You can go on sinless for much of your life. And it's true that because we're saved by Jesus, we can sin and we can also not sin. But the Bible is far more sobering than we're just gonna live this triumphant, sinless life. I think of Romans seven, we do what we don't wanna do and we don't do what we know that we should do. And so this is us, our inability to live this perfect life and our desperate need for Jesus. How many times have we resolved not to sin, but then five minutes later, we're doing the same thing? And we, we, we say to, to our wife, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna respond in anger, but then something happens like an hour later, well, and, and you're full of anger again. How many times have we resolved, I'm gonna do better with, with devotions, I'm gonna do better in prayer, and then nothing really changes. I mean, th- th- this is our life, our inability to be this, this perfect person before God. And we're also like Peter in the types of things that we do. You know, Peter in one moment, he's full of passion and commitment, far more commitment than, than, than me sometimes or, or some of us. But then the next moment, he, he's falling into sin. And, and that's our lives, this roller coaster of, of moments of, of passion and growth and then moments of, of falling back a little bit. And we're also like Peter in that we have our worst moments we all have our worst moments, don't we? I think this was Peter's. This is probably the worst moment of his entire life. What's been your worst moment? Behind closed doors, in secrecy, what's been the worst moment of your marriage where you've said and done things you regret? Or the worst moment of your parenting where you know that you've disciplined your child out of anger because they upset you So you're gonna get them back rather than lovingly disciplining them, correcting them, and guiding them. Examples can can abound for for any of these things, but we've had our worst moments. And so we're like Peter. And what all this means is that we are in desperate need for a savior. We are completely insufficient. But there is someone who is fully sufficient, and that is Jesus, who is full of grace and mercy, who dies on the cross for our sins. And if we believe in him, then we will be saved, and all of these sins that are Peter-like will be forgiven. So this leads us to our second point. Let's look at the love of Jesus, a love that impels Christ to suffer for us and to die for people like Peter and to die for people like me and for you. And we see his love so clearly because he's suffering for us and there's growing suffering. His passion is intensifying as these narratives go on up until he dies. So let's look what's going on here. So Jesus is led to the household of Annas, who is the high priest. And this might be confusing Uh, Because at the end of this section, it says Caiaphas is the high priest. So is Caiaphas the priest? Is Annas the high priest? What's going on here? 
Well, Caiaphas is the actual high priest. He has the the legal power and authority. Annas is the former high priest who has been deposed. Annas has no legal power or authority. And so this whole act is illegal. But why would they bring him to Annas then? Well, because Annas still was liked by a lot of people. The words of Annas carried weight. And so if Annas could bring a judgment, then the other leaders could say, well, Annas said this, so therefore you better convict Jesus. You better sentence him to death. Do you see how unjust this is? That the political maneuvering here, the evil at work, this is what Jesus is suffering in order to die for us. And we see further illegal things happening. Annas questions Jesus, and he asks Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So, so Jesus is interrogated on his relationships and his doctrine. And this is illegal because in this ancient uh, Jewish uh, culture, you could not question the accused unless there's also witnesses. Those witnesses should be there to either confirm what you say or to contradict what you say. So this whole line of questioning is a perversion of justice. And Jesus calls Annas out on this. He says in response, you know what I've said. What I've said and done is all out in the open. There's no secrets. Everybody knows about this. In other words, Jesus says, where are the witnesses? And then Jesus is struck. Is that how you talk to a a high priest? Jesus is probably struck on the face. And this is a precursor to the further blows that that Christ is going to experience. The, The lashing on his back, the crown of thorns, and they put the purple robe around him and staff, and then they mock him and spit him, and they beat him. And then, of course, you've got the nails eventually. Well, Jesus is struck on the face, the beginning of worse things to happen. And then Jesus again asks for witnesses. He says, if I've done what is evil, then who's here to testify uh, to this? In other words, where are the witnesses? Oh, all of this is just adding to the weight of the suffering and passion of Jesus. It's because he loves us. Our passage highlights the suffering of Christ in other ways. Look at the literary structure here, which is very important. So, so Peter first denies Christ, then the scene shifts to the trial, then the scene shifts back to Peter's final denial and the rooster crowing. So feel the flow of how this is happening. Peter's saying, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I don't know the man. I don't want anything to do with him. The scene shifts to the trial where Jesus is pleading, where are the witnesses? The scene shifts back to Peter denying Christ. And Peter is in the courtyard. He's right there. Do you see how weighty this is? Jesus knows all of this. He feels all of this. And this is part of the growing isolation of our Savior. 
That's one way to look at the passion narratives as growing isolation. So it starts in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus wants his disciples to, to, to pray with him, and they won't. They fall asleep, and then Jesus is sweating drops of blood all alone. And then Jesus is arrested. His disciples flee. He's alone again. Jesus is alone before Annas. No witnesses. And later on, when Jesus is found and sentenced uh, to uh, be hung on a cross, the crowds say, let his blood be on our hands. He's alone. Then on the cross, as he hangs, he's alone, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there at that moment, Christ is bearing the wrath of God for our salvation. And so Christ's isolation here in this trial is part of a bigger picture of growing isolation, and we just sense the weight of suffering is getting worse and worse moment by moment. It's because he loves us so that we can be saved. People like Peter can be saved. And this is amazing. It's such amazing love because Jesus knows that Peter is going to sin. And Jesus suffers and dies for him anyway. Jesus knows our sin. He knows every single one of them, past, present, future. Jesus knew our worst moments Jesus knew those things that we regret that we have done behind closed doors. And yet he suffered and died for us anyway. What love. Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what's also amazing is that Jesus, on that night he was betrayed, predicting Peter's death, or his own death and Peter's denial, Jesus ate with his disciples. He shared a meal with them. What a sign of love. And he instituted the Lord's Supper and says, this is my body and this is my blood. Now Judas, he didn't believe in Jesus. He was possessed by Satan. But Peter did believe in Jesus. And there's Jesus offering his body and blood for someone like Peter. And he wants that relationship and that fellowship And so be sure that he wants that same thing for us. I think about what's going on in our culture today and and how everyone is is just so so isolated. Everyone's cut off from each other. COVID further separated us when we were already quite separated from each other. People are all aching for deep relationships. And so the church is actually in a prime spot to to fill that that need. But here's the thing. People are scared of relationships. They're craving it. But they also don't want it at the same time because there's commitment. And and then you're exposed. People will see you for who you are. And people are very nervous about that. I think people fear that if someone really knows me, they're not going to love me. And that that just keeps people out of church. It keeps people even from coming to Jesus Christ. But here's such amazing news. Jesus knows us. He knows all of our sin. And he still loves us so much. He would suffer, as we read in our passage, 
up until the point where he dies for our salvation. How does all of this apply to us? Our third point. I mean, I hope already we're, we're just amazed by his love and we walk away refreshed just knowing how much Jesus loves you. That alone is like the best application and is enough. But, but we can go a little further here. How else does this apply? Well, one way is that we need to let ourselves be humbled. And maybe this is something that we can do when we get home today or in our devotions through this week. Just ask God to impress these truths upon our hearts so that we're humbled. And we have to be humbled because we're insufficient compared to the all-sufficiency of Christ's love and grace and his atoning work on the cross. But, But what does humility look like in practice. Well, a humble person, I, I think, based on these truths, is going to just live with a sense of dependency upon Jesus. It's like how the old hymn goes, I need thee every hour. If you know, if you know how insufficient you are, then you just carry that, that emotion and that attitude with you all the time. Lord, I just need you every moment, every day of my life. To be humble, I think, means that we recognize the truth of 1 Corinthians 10. And there it says, if we think we can stand, be careful or else we fall. So we know that we can't stand on our own. And so that knowledge drives us to go back to God over and over again in prayer, asking him for help. It means that we know that we're like Peter. There's moments where we might be better and there's moments where we might be worse. We know that we can't stand on our own strength, so we just keep going back to God. I think being, uh, living with humility also calls for, for, for patience with, with, with people. Now, now I, I know that that sin has consequences and sin does damage trust and it can ruin things for a very long time. But, but generally speaking, We can be patient with people, working towards love, forgiveness, and reconciliation if possible because Jesus patiently suffered for us. Jesus knew Peter was gonna sin, but stayed the course. Doesn't that that affect us? Doesn't that move us? Can't we be patient and long-suffering with other people as well? Another way this passage applies to us is that we need to let ourselves become undone by the love of Jesus. We have to be completely unraveled by his love. Here's what I mean by this. Peter was broken. Peter was completely repentant. He knew the severity of what he's done. So he felt the weight of that. But then we see that Peter is restored later on in John. And the way that Peter is restored, he's forgiven, but also the flames of his passion are, are, are rekindled. And so Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know I love you. Peter says a second time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then Peter says a third time, so that three denials, then three uh, 
questions from Jesus. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. So so this is what it means to be undone by the love of Jesus. You, You feel the weight of your sin. You are horrified by your sin. But then when you turn to Jesus, you feel the guilt removed. You feel the relief of forgiveness. And then your passions are flamed and you're just on fire for Christ again, ready to go forth in love. That's what it means to be undone brokenness of sins, but then just love and passion back for Christ. And finally, this passage applies in this way. We can have comfort that there's assurance for our salvation, that our salvation is not dependent on our fluctuating faith. Peter was saved, and that's what makes Peter different than than Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus, but Judas was not trusting in Jesus. Peter betrayed Jesus, but he trusted that the blood of Christ was going to cover all of his sin. And so if we have repented and believed in Jesus, then our salvation is secure. And we're going to go through fluctuating faith moments. We're going to go through times of doubt, but yet our salvation is secure because Jesus paid it all. It's about the finished work of the cross, the all-sufficiency of Christ and his grace for insufficient people like ourselves. And so go forth with renewed joy, go forth with comfort and assurance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for sending Jesus. Without him, we are nothing. But with him, there's new purpose in life and new meaning and new joy. So help us to express that joy to you. Help us to adore you more. Help us to to say thank you to you and to dedicate our lives as a response of gratitude to your great love. What a great God you are. And we love you because you first loved us. Amen.